Please remain standing for the reading of today's epistle lesson from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them and in the passions of our own flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, and out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark, for reading our lesson this morning. Uh, grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. Uh, and as Jim has already expressed, we're so grateful to those uh, who are joining us online today. We welcome you. We, got, we know that people are in many places today, and uh, we're glad that you're here. And we're certainly thankful that our friends online, wherever they are, at the coast or in the mountains, are joining us on this special Labor Day uh, weekend. Paul Farrington, uh, when you have a second string guy like Paul Farrington who comes when we need him. When the other guy's gone, you're in pretty good shape. And we're grateful to Paul. Thank you, Paul, for all that you do and uh, for your work among us. I will say we miss Greg Bunn, but not as much as we used to when Paul wasn't here. So we're grateful. Uh, and, and to Ryan, to our choir, beautiful, beautiful music, Jim, for leading us and all of you for your presence today. Uh, I can't believe it's September 3rd. Football season has begun. I hope your team won. I noticed that only one SEC team lost yesterday, and that was South Carolina. Uh, UT had a big win. My team, Vanderbilt, is undefeated. <laughs> and I hope it will last more than two weeks, but we'll see. We're grateful that you are here today. We've come to the conclusion, to the end of a series that we started four weeks ago on the first Sunday of August called core values. And we've said each week that core values are essentially principles and priorities that guide our action and our conduct. They are in essence for companies or organizations or even churches, they are the guardrails, the compass that 
keeps us focused on our mission and vision. It's been interesting over the last four weeks, many of you have sent me the core values of your company, uh, and, and some of them are very, very interesting. Chuck Williams, who's with us this morning, sent me one of his clients, Thompson Electric in Lebanon, Tennessee, and these are the core values, integrity, humility, dependability, positivity, and productivity, all of which very helpful. One of our students who was with us at 8.30 in the choir, uh, Taylor Stewart Beavers, uh, had to write a paper a couple of weeks ago on a university, and she chose Tuskegee University, and these are the core values of that great university, equality, human dignity, service, student success, excellence, global awareness, integrity, and faith. And by the way, if you didn't know, our own youth department uh, with the leadership of Bryant Fisher, our youth director who's been with us for one year now, uh, has student ministry core values. There were three, community, discipleship, missional living. And there are many, many others that I could quote. There are a few others that some of you have sent to me that I don't know if it's a joke or if it's real, uh, so you may know of a company like this. One of them said, uh, our core value is to provide the highest level of service for the least amount of effort. <laughs> Not sure who that is. Uh, another said, our purpose is to be paid on time or sooner if possible. And the last one, I guess this one's my favorite. Uh, we start with bad data and we go downhill from there. Reminds me of several of our media sources. I'll tell you what I think is important when it comes to core values. I think it's critical that core values become core virtues. And you say, what's the difference? Well, thanks for asking. Values are aspirational, idealistic. Virtues are reality. Core virtues are core values in action. And they're not only to be expressed, they're to be embodied. And when they're not embodied, when values don't coincide with virtues, there's a problem. Jesus saw a problem in the synagogue of his day. He saw a contradiction in the synagogue between values and virtues and you know Jesus, he's never one to shy away from conflict, and he calls it out in Matthew 23. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they have the positional authority, so you've got to do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. I remember when, when our kids, Sherry and I, when our kids were younger, we, we used to hear folks say, uh, don't do as we say, do as we do. And that's critical. Because when virtue and value don't coincide, there's trouble. We've been reviewing our church core values for the last several weeks, and today we've come to the end of the series, to the last, which is actually two parts in the last. We've talked about Christ-centered, a ministry of all believers that's a part of our Reformation history, T to be teachable, to be risk-takers for Christ's sake. And the last is twofold. We uphold the primacy of Scripture and the centrality of grace. 
Those are key. The primacy of Scripture, that phrase is a Wesleyan term, and though we live in a post-denominational age and we don't emphasize denomination, we are definitively of a Wesleyan lineage, and he coined that phrase, the primacy of Scripture, and it, it infers that the Bible is the primary means of revelation. In other words, the Scripture that's in your pew or that's in your lap reveals the truth about who God is, the truth about our sin, and the truth about our need for Christ. Mr. Wesley often referred to himself with a Latin phrase, homo unius libri, which means a man of one book. This is not to say that Wesley didn't read other books. He read widely and required his pastors to do the same. In fact, did you know that Mr. Wesley often scolded some of his pastors uh, for sometimes saying that they only read the Bible and that they were exhibiting a kind of rank enthusiasm, which back then would have been like calling someone a religious lunatic. Mr. Wesley knew that when it comes to application and interpretation of the Bible, that we bring certain tools to it, like tradition, like reason, like experience, critical. It's interesting, we train our disciple leaders, and you can sign up for Disciple Bible Study today, by the way, it's the last day and I hope you will. We train our disciple teachers that a difference of interpretation in the scripture is a bigger problem for us than it is for God. And I think that's true. It's interesting in our culture. We'll fight over the Bible, we'll fuss over it, we'll debate and argue over it, we'll do almost everything except to read the Bible. I'm a man of one book, he said. He believed, as we believe, that these scriptures, 66 books in this one book, has the capacity to deliver us into the presence of God. We believe that. He believes, 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God. The word inspiration means, it's theonustros, it means God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that everybody who belongs to God would be proficient and furnished for every good work. I love what A.T. Robertson, preacher in the 20th century, once said. He said that the greatest proof that the Bible is inspired is that it has withstood so much bad preaching, (laughs) present company included. I was talking to somebody the other day about our core values. We were going through the ones that we've been through, and he asked me an interesting question that I don't remember ever being asked before. He said, Davis, if you had to reduce our core values to one, what would it be? I said, well, I stuttered at first. I said, I'm not sure I can answer that. He said, but if you had to, which one would you choose? And after a lengthy pause, I said, I think I would have to choose grace. He said, why? And I said, because I'm coming to the conclusion in my life that grace is the primacy of Scripture. That when you read this book from Genesis to Revelation, 
the premise of the book, the thesis of the book, the keynote is grace. In fact, the Bible itself is a means of grace in that it points us to God. Barbara Brown Taylor, one of my favorite Episcopal priests, once said, the Bible is not the point, the Bible points. It points out the problem of our sin. The word in Ephesians is harmatia, which means it's an archery term, missing the mark. All of us are missing the mark. But it also points to the remedy for our sin, which is divine grace. The Bible is not the point, it's the point. The written word points to the living word in which we find saving grace. By the way, if you didn't know, that word for grace in the Greek language is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. You recognize it as the root of words like charity, words like charisma, and it literally means favor. It means goodwill. It means loving kindness. Or best definition, grace means undeserved love. If you don't think it's important, count the number of times the word grace is used in the New Testament, 156 times. And Ephesians 2 is clear that we are saved by, what, grace, not by works. Philip Yancey wrote a book a few years ago called What's So Amazing About Grace, where he said, and I quote, Grace doesn't depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Ask people what they have to do to get to heaven, and they will probably reply, be good. But Jesus' teaching contradicts that answer. All we must do is cry, help. It's not 99% God and 1% us. It's 100% grace. Even your faith is a gift. Even my faith is a gift of grace. Now, that kind of grace not only saves us from something, it saves us for something. God's grace not only saves us from sin and death, which is our dirty little secret, it saves us for a life of purpose, of good works. In other words, God's ongoing grace in us enables us to become gracious too. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency sometimes, none of you do, but I have a tendency sometimes to put limits on grace, particularly when it's offered to someone who doesn't deserve it, someone other than me. We put restrictions on it. You see this in Luke 7. This is one of my favorite stories. It's not often told, but in Luke 7, there's a Pharisee who is a teacher of the law, respected teacher of the law, who is hosting a dinner party for Rabbi Jesus one night. And Jesus comes through the door, takes his place at the table, and suddenly a woman who was not invited from the city, says the text, who is described as a sinner, she comes into the party. And she doesn't come empty-handed. She's bringing a jar of perfume, and she sits down behind Jesus. She's weeping. She's crying her eyes out. She's kissing Jesus, and she's washing his feet with her tears and then wiping it with her hair. I mean, 
this kind of scene belongs in the inquirer somewhere. For, for a first century woman to uncover her hair at a public gathering? So when the Pharisees saw this, one of them, whose name was Simon, said, if this Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, this woman touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus knows what he's thinking, and he calls him by name. Simon, I have something to say to you, which is, by the way, a Jewish way of introducing a stern message. In other words, they're fixing to have a come to Jesus meeting. And Jesus tells a little story. This is so Jesus. There was a banker who had two debtors, two people who were in hock, couldn't pay. One owed him 500 denarii. That's a year's worth of wages. The other 50 denarii. But neither one of them could pay off the debt. But one day, the banker was having a good day and so he tore up the notes, just canceled the debt. Jesus stopped right there and looking at Simon, he said, which of these two would you say loved the banker more? And Simon, who really didn't want to answer, said, well, I guess it's the one with the greater debt. And Jesus said, word, bingo. And then turning toward the woman, he says to Simon, you see this lady? I came into your house and you gave me no water, but she washed my feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, no greeting, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You gave me no oil for my head, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. By the way, if you didn't know, all three of those, the water for the washing of feet, the kiss of peace, the oil for the head, all three of those are signs of hospitality customarily performed by the host of the dinner. But the Pharisee didn't do any of them, and she did all of them. The Pharisee had the values without the virtues, and that woman had the virtues and Simon was convinced she had no values. Have you ever noticed that sometimes those with the dirtiest of hands point the finger? What's happening here? Jesus says, I tell you, this woman's sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Thus she has shown me great love. But the one who is forgiven little loves just a little. <laughs> What's the point? It's simply this. There is a correlation between grace and gratitude. There is a connection between forgiveness and love. Isn't it beautiful that when you read the New Testament, God never says, oh, I love you if. Jesus never says, I love you because. I love you except when. I love you unless, until. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love without limits. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. 
It's the primacy of Scripture. Last word. Sometimes you see it, grace. Many of you know our son is a pastor in Noonan, Georgia, at the First Methodist Church. He's been there for a couple of years. They've never had a pastor under 40. He's 33. He calls a lot. <laughs> a few weeks ago, he told me that he had gone to the hospital after Sunday services uh, to check on some of his flock. There were three or four in the hospital, and he, they'd had communion that Sunday, so he took the elements with him to offer the means of grace. And he said, I was, I was in between visits when all of a sudden this nurse comes running up to me on the fifth floor, spots me carrying the bread and wine, and says, are you a priest? And he said, no, I'm a Methodist pastor. He said, then she looked me over real carefully and said, well, I guess you'll do. And then said, there's a man down the hallway. He's not going to make it. And the family has requested a priest to perform last rites. My son said, I walked down the corridor toward the room, pausing with my cell phone to Google everything I could find out about Catholic last rites, which wasn't much. And I went into the room. This lady with a sweet face comes over to me, introduces herself. And he said, I was immediately struck by how gracious she was. In fact, he said, I, I remember thinking, why is she being so kind when she's in the presence of death? He said, I introduced myself. He said, ma'am, I'm not a Catholic, I'm a Methodist. And she said, who cares? We're just glad you're here. Do you Methodists know anything about prayer? He said, we do. She introduced him to the family and then to her husband in bed, who was unresponsive, but still present. He said, as I went about the prayer and communion and stumbled through absolution and genuflecting, he, he said, I watched this gracious woman giving every ounce of attention that she had to her husband. Everything she did, everything she said was just covered in grace. She held out her hand to touch his so that he would know he wasn't by himself. Spoke to him in soft tones. She wiped his brow to cool him off. He said the nurse said they needed grace, but grace was already there. <laughs> he saw it. He felt it. He tasted it. And he said, Dad, I went home different because of it. I pray for that every Sunday in this house. That's our core, core value. It's the primacy of Scripture. And when a core value becomes a core virtue, the climate of the room changes. We change. And grace becomes us. We become a means of grace that points others to Jesus. This morning, you're invited. You're an invited guest to a table where everyone is welcome, where grace is on the menu, and it's all you can eat. <laughs> and the only requirement for coming to the table is to feel your need of him 
to say, help. (laughs) And to come in repentance to receive. And when you do, if you do, you may notice that grace becomes you. (laughs) May it be so. In Jesus' name.